Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello humans. This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Carrie Beddingfield, author, TEDx speaker, elite cyclist, PhD student at Cambridge University. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff to get into in all that is Carrie Beddingfield, but I think the perhaps the number one piece of work that you're interested in, involved in right now, that's going to be a huge pain point for people in corporations is meetings, right? They suck for most of us, most of the time. And I, as I understand it, you've developed a product called Lomo and you, and it's also forming part of what you're doing at Cambridge University. So maybe we could start there with, you know, your take on meetings and how we can improve them. Yes, meetings have been a particular fascination of mine for probably about four years now. Um, I've worked quite a lot with organisations who are trying to um, change the way they work, uh, improve the engagement, we love that word, don't we, of their employees. Um, And I found that meetings were cropping up more and more in conversations with organisations. So if I um, opened up a conversation about uh, engagement or another word we love, empowerment, I would find that people would quite often say, well, if you want to engage people in this organisation, then you've got to sort out our meetings first. And I took that as a bit of a challenge and started to look at the world around me and understand why were meetings causing such a problem when so many people wanted them to change? What else was going on in the world that might inspire um, a a shift um, or to move on to a new trajectory there and what could I personally do to try and solve that problem for some of our clients okay so that's the that's the setup for it and what's yeah what what your your key findings in terms of how people need to change change up how they're doing meetings so I think the short answer is um, I don't know. So <laughs> I think it's a I think meetings are a uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say they they are a wicked problem, but they are a problem hugely worth addressing, but which appears to me to be quite resistant to change. Um, so do you so, just, sorry, does wick, wicked have a special meaning there? Or are you you meaning it in biblical terms or? Yeah. So a wicked a wicked problem. Um, uh, was first sort of described, I think, back in the um, 60s um, by Herbert Simon and describes those uh, big, complex uh, problems where even the definition of the problem is difficult for people to agree on, let alone what the solution might be. Um, and it tends to get bandied around as a word um, used in uh, politics, geopolitics, that kind of thing, um, or healthcare, things that we regard as these enormous, meaty, cross-socio-cultural challenges. Um, And it kind of means it's really, 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 really difficult. Um, And their meetings are not uh, necessarily enormous geopolitical, um, socio-constructs, etc. all these excellent long words um, that we used to mean really, really difficult. I do think they, it, 
meetings tick some of those boxes. So they are an unpredictable system. They seem to resist study. They seem to resist change. And um, there are many kind of different people involved who see meetings really differently. So there's kind of no one accepted, right, well, this is the problem with meetings and here are three ways that you can make them better. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then, okay. So, but as I understand it, LOMO was an attempt yes. to come up with some suggestions yeah. or guidelines, right? So, so I guess, um, when I first started to tackle the problem, I felt that meetings in general were a throwback from very 20th century ways of working. So they were hierarchical, um, they followed a very linear structure, um, they made, uh, they often were very content rich, so people would be talking a lot about um, a specific piece of content, whether that's the technology they're discussing or uh, the legal issue they're discussing, whatever the content of the conversation was, but devoting very little time to figuring out what is the best way, why are we having this conversation, what's the best way to have it. So I tried to make um, something that would enable people to have a uh, much more, um, uh, where power would be much more distributed across people, so much more particip a genuinely participative meeting, um, and where the purpose was really clear. So one of the things I think happens in meetings is that people go into them with a, a either a slightly different or a very different understanding of what that meeting's for. And if you've got a different picture in your head to somebody else in that meeting, then that's when you end up going around in circles. And it's also where a lot of that tension and friction in, and frustration in meetings comes. For example, if we're having a meeting with some other people and I think we're generating ideas to try and solve a problem and somebody else thinks that we're critiquing ideas or making a decision, then we're going to have a really frustrating conversation. We kind of know that anyway from creativity and innovation research. We know that if we're generating ideas, brainstorming, whatever technique we're using, if somebody else is shutting them down and in a kind of deciding mode, that just kills off the ideas. But it kind of goes further than that as well. So imagine if um, one person thinks that they're uh, sharing information. So all they're doing is, is kind of making visible um, some information that's useful to other people in the meeting. And someone else thinks that um, they should be giving feedback on that data or helping um, mm. with something. And again, hugely frustrating. I'm just sharing my information and you're now telling me what you think I should be doing with it and whether it's right or wrong. So, so one of the things I felt was hugely important was to find a way to have people have the same picture in their head about what we're actually doing right now. So if we're having ideas, let's all do that together. And now if we're going to make some decisions about those ideas we've come up with so far, then let's do that together. And if we're sharing information, let's just share information. And if we're asking people to critique or judge or help with that information then let's know that too so to be more explicit okay that makes sense because I, I can definitely recall meetings where i've gone in and i thought oh hey i'm just here to update you on some stuff i've been doing and and, and suddenly i'm in a barrage of critique i'm like whoa, whoa 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 i wasn't really you know i wasn't prepared for this right that 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 moment exactly right and yet that data that people have is hugely important and just because you weren't ready for that in that moment or that wasn't your expectation it doesn't mean that you didn't um, 
want or need or would find that data extremely valuable, but it's that clash of intention that is a problem. I see, yeah. And another thing that I have seen beyond just meetings, but it particularly applies to meetings as well, is as we have this trend for um, reducing hierarchy, flatter organisations, it's not happening everywhere, but I think most places would like it to happen more to feel that people are empowered. We all love that word. Um, And for decision making to move closer to people who are doing the work. So as we were on that trend, and also um, most leaders and managers are are moving away or learning to move away from uh, a sort of old style dictatorial um, style of command and control. You know, that is an obvious big trend that's been been going on for decades now. Um, And in, in removing some of that hierarchy, also what gets removed is the structure as well. So we're not wanting to dictate something. People are confusing removing that hierarchy with removing structure. And my argument is that we should be removing the hierarchy or peeling it back, certainly, but we should be um, keeping a new helpful structure. Because without the structure, actually just the unsaid power dynamics play out and we're all looking around each other for cues about what is it okay to do or not do. And actually some structure can provide um, the freedom for people to know how they're expected to contribute, know it's okay to do something. Um, And in fact, there's a big body of work um, called Liberating Structures. There's an interesting book by the same title of 33 meeting types, all designed to um, liberate people to make a better contribution through structure. Mm, okay, right. 33 different meeting types. That's, a, That's right. So 30, 33 is a lot. Yeah, 33 is a lot. You might take the whole meeting to work out which, uh, which meeting you're having. That's right. So, so, so that's one of the challenges with liberating structures. Much as I love it, and I do think the principles from which it's derived are absolutely spot on. I think 33 is too many and most, most people I know would feel the same. So when I developed Lomo, I tried to develop a smaller set of meetings, um, but I still ended up with 11. And 11 is also <laughs> quite a lot. Um, so I then cut that back to six. And actually, I ignored a whole load of meetings. So I said, any meetings that are to do with generating ideas or making decisions, actually, they are relatively speaking, well served. So there's a ton of stuff on creativity techniques. There's actually quite a lot on decision making. But I'm just going to focus on meetings where once you've figured out, once you know what a team is supposed to be doing, how can the team, that team meet together in a way that is hugely effective in um, making important information visible, um, uh, unblocking things quickly, spotting new risks as they emerge, um, understanding what's being learnt as something is being done and therefore how the project needs to adapt and change. Um, so I just looked at those and I even honed that down to three in the end. Good, easily rememberable. And, 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 and those are on the Lomo, so you created a website around it, haven't you? And people can download yeah. templates and... Yeah, so you can certainly download the open source template for one of them and the others are in the process of going up. Um, And I guess the 
the question mark has been or what has what has divided the nation of meeting goers <laughs> is whether it's what format you want to what, what tool is useful to help you change a meeting so Lomo is actually in the form of a canvas many people certainly in the entrepreneurial world are familiar with business model canvas with lean canvas javelin board that idea of a big piece of paper with some instructions, some boxes to fill in, and a kind of process to go through that helps you, um, kind of orders the process of making something quite complex um, happen quickly. People are quite familiar with that in, in my world. So I took a canvas approach. Now the canvases are either loved or loathed. <laughs> so some people find the canvases a barrier and feel like the idea of taking a big piece of paper with loads of boxes, and the idea that's like a right way and a wrong way to do this meeting is unhelpful. It's too big a leap, it's too restrictive, um, it's too difficult to learn, the barrier to entry is too high, the barrier to introducing it in a meeting um, is too high. And let's talk about why meetings are difficult to change, why the barriers to changing a meeting are high a little bit later. Other bits, so I, at one point I, I thought maybe we're just gonna have to leave behind these canvases altogether. Uh, maybe that's just how I see the world. It's it's a very kind of startup thing to do, and maybe nobody wants the canvases. So I started to take them out of the work that I was um, doing with people, and then a whole other flurry of people said, "Don't take away the canvases. <laughs> that's the only way we know how what to do. It's the only way we can kind of keep control. Interesting word. How we can control a meeting. That's the thing that means that even if I'm not there facilitating a meeting, it happens in a better way than it would have done otherwise. That is the skill creator, um, guardrail, etc. And the more I explored it, the more I realized that it's obvious really that people see the world differently and um, canvases work brilliantly for some people and not others and the question was then well do I just make something that works for people who love the, the, the visibly structured approach or do I try and do something that allows anybody to implement the principles whether they like the paper or not and which did you come up with I think still still unknown so um so the clients who are currently working with Lomo do like the canvases and certainly the canvases are a good way to train facilitators to do that meeting. And what I would always say in Lomo uh, training or exploration session is use what's useful and discard what isn't. Because as soon as you start trying to implement things that you don't personally think are quite right for your team, but there's something in the rule book, in the structure that says you should, then you may run into trouble and a big, Part of LOMO is to encourage people in meetings to use their, um, what Frederick Leloux would call our kind of human sensing machine, so the, the, the data we kind of perceive through our judgment, the, the data that our feelings are often trying to point us at, um, together with our uh, experience and the sort of synth the unconscious synthesis of the knowledge that we've derived so far, people should use that more I want to help people use that more in meetings and certainly they should be using that in deciding how to use a canvas how, how to use a meeting technique and that's in real contrast to another um, 
set of techniques called holacracy, which um, I'm always surprised actually how few people in the corporate world have heard of holacracy. It hasn't even um, kind of appeared on many people's radars at all. Holacracy, I think, is a fantastic start to understanding how to structure a non-hierarchical business or how to create a structure that's not based on hierarchy. Uh, it's a great leap forward. And at the same time, it's highly rules-based. So you don't have the option to choose which bits you do and don't do if you do holacracy. And though I can absolutely see why that is in, why they've done it that way, I didn't want to do the same thing. I uh, I would say one of the founding principles of Lomo is, is it's based on trust and self-responsibility. And I felt that should absolutely be reflected in how you learn and experience it and how you deliver it. Okay. So you've left it a lot. Yeah. A lot more. So there's much more onus on the individual understanding the principles and applying it in their own context than that's uh, right. yeah, that holacracy there. That's right. So Loma gives you a, a starting point and a, um, if you think the alternative to a canvas-based approach, um, I suppose there are many alternatives, but one would be that you just learn a load of meeting techniques. And that's great and fine, but I felt like that's requiring, for that, for that to work, to change a wide variety of meetings, you'd need everybody who runs meetings or invites people to meetings to become really quite an expert meeting facilitator and to spend quite a lot of time designing meetings and trying to, uh, and committing brain power and time to deciding how to structure a meeting. And I wanted people to just spend more time having good meetings. So I felt the Canvas approach, even with that, use your judgment to decide how you apply it and which bits you apply and in which way, nevertheless, was quite a big shortcut for people who were like, I don't want to be a facilitator. I just want to be able to run better meetings with my right. team. Okay. Now, the other angle to come at all of this from, so you can start from the point of saying, we have really terrible meetings, we need to change, and lots of people do. Other people come from a completely different angle, which is we need to change this thing in our culture. We need people to take more responsibility. We need teams to gel together and um, really um, accept and pick up ownership for projects and get really good at working together to um, deliver something in a kind of changing, adapting environment. Um, we want people to become faster, um, more, more agile, more great words, <laughs> insert popular words of choice here. And they saw meetings as a one lever um, that they could use to do that. Or we encourage them to see meetings as a place in which everybody can practice operating in a different way. Um, so meetings are a real proxy for culture. Um, and when you arrive in an organisation and you're trying to figure out how it works and who holds the power and what it's okay to do and not do and so on, actually meetings give us a huge amount of information about where power really lies and what is and isn't okay and how things work around here. So let's use that to, um, as a sort of lever to shift towards uh, the culture that you want rather than... Um, uh, try and change the culture through a culture workshop and hope that that spills over into a meeting. 
Oh, that's right. interesting. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So you actually, yeah, you use it as a as a pivot point within the organization or a focus area and, and spread change from there. It reminds me a bit of um, David Marquette's Turn the Ship Around. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, have you? And, uh, and, yeah. Yeah. and one of the levers he uses where he starts is approval for leave. And when he inherited this submarine, it's actually, it should, turn the submarine around, it should be cool. When he inherited the, sub, the submarine, uh, he, one of the first things he did to change the culture of the submarine was to change that process. So instead of needing six signatures for, some, for, for a, a sailor to, to get their leave approved, it was, I think they brought it down to two or one signatures. And so it's, that reminds me of a, of a similar scenario where you, you start in one place and then over time you know, and then spread out from there to change the culture. Yeah, exactly right. And the more I, more I look at it, the more I think we have a set of um, things like that in organisations, which I, in my head I call um, this sort of soft, soft architecture or soft furniture in an organisation. So it's not the physical building. Um, it's not even actually probably in a pot. Some of it's not in a policy document anywhere. Um, mm. But nevertheless, there are these sort of tangible um, ways of working that are really quite entrenched um, that without changing those, it's very difficult for anything else to change. But actually, if you can change those, you can make a big difference very quickly. So another one is budgeting. <laughs> and if you've read um, Beyond Budgeting, mm. you know, you'll, many people will have read that and, and felt that that was hugely insightful and interesting. But how many organisations are actually budgeting any differently? Um, same with forecasting and uh, planning. Um, same to a certain extent with email. Um, email, though it's a newer technology, really is just another, it's just an electronic way of rubber stamping things, making sure that information is captured in a written format, um, making sure that you can prove that people were informed, et cetera, et cetera. And there are, there are loads of these. Performance management is another one, how performance reviews take place. Things that have, th things where there's an element of, the organisation wants an element of control. There's an element of kind of, safety so if you do budgeting wrong um if you do um people's expenses wrong if you do their performance review wrong then that's potentially dangerous in, in inverted commas um and all these things I, I feel like are um the culture of the organization is really encoded into them and if you're sending people off on a culture workshop which is encouraging them to you know take ownership and spark action and um you know, feel free to try, <laughs> try things and take risks and it's okay to fail. I'm just not sure how effective that is without addressing some of these other harder problems. Okay, great. Okay, so that's, that's, that's meetings. Uh, I'm not sure this, yeah, it feels like we've had a good, a good tour around meetings. Um, so the other, so, so the other thing that you to, have risen to prominence around was your TEDx talk. Um, and you you shared interestingly there about you know this relationship operating zero operating system 1.0 and then upgrading to freedom 9.9 this new operating system um is that still something that you you're 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 working on and you're interested in those ideas yes worth exploring uh, yeah uh, absolutely and it's a it's a kind of um 
per ongoing personal mission as in the target of the mission is myself <laughs> so um, so tr- trying to continually um uh keep booting up the new operating system and um and, and also recognizing when the where the value of the old operating system is because it's not valueless it just achieves a different a different outcome um and so for our listeners, is what, yeah. what is, you know, in, in a few words, what's the old operating system and the new so one? The old operating system is, um, uh, has applications like um, driving, uh, competing, um, covering your ass, um, all, all the things that we do to try and stay safe in life. And, and for me, it was very much at work as well um so it they are perfectly rational responses if you believe that the world is unsafe and that the way to stay safe is to make sure everybody knows that you're really valuable um and to kind of remain a an important person in the tribe so somebody who doesn't make mistakes who always um delivers something brilliant somebody who's kind of um special and different now being or, or special and valuable, I guess, and being special and valuable, uh, I guess two things there. One is there's nothing wrong with trying to be special and wanting to be special and valuable, but it comes from, it's where that intention comes from. So does it come because you're too afraid that you're going to be kicked out of the tribe, i.e. Um, a situation for our ancestors would, that would have meant that they would have to then kind of fight off tigers by themselves 24 hours a day but you know how long is that going to last probably not very so a genuinely hugely dangerous situation one for which our brains are still kind of predominantly wired um so wanting to be special and valuable is is not wrong but it is in general in our our kind of um more evolved and mature world it's unhelpful if it purely comes from a place of fear if it comes from a place of possibility, that's completely different. And when you say purely c- c- it comes from a place of fear, so it's okay to have a bit of fear, is it? Well, so so along along my journey, I had a massive pendulum swing. So I swung from um, or swung from wanting so from being very driven, extremely driven by fear. And the more driven by fear I was the more driven by fear I was, the more, more fear was all I could see until I didn't even know there was another way of looking at things, couldn't see beyond that. And I swung a very long way towards um, trying to live without fear entirely and uh, or if I possibly could or feeling it was wrong to do anything from fear and also um, moving to an incredibly high trust model. And that caused me a couple of problems along the way. Um, so particularly at work, it meant that I, I stepped back. I took too many steps back too quickly. Um, I, I think people really, really valued the fact that I was no longer quite such a difficult person to work with. And I was much more encouraging and supportive. Um, uh, but I think what they lost was the... Um, a bit of structure, a bit of accountability, um, and playing the kind of backstop role, and also taking full responsibility for the governance of the businesses that I owned 100% of the shares of. And I think I took too many steps back 
from from that. And, and, then, so, and, what, and what happened when you took too many steps back? <laughs> um, well, so um, things carried along just fine for on the surface for quite a while, maybe a year, a year and a half. But under the surface, um, problems had emerged which had not been made visible and not been addressed. And that meant that a number of, for example, a number of client, important client relationships kind of ran aground, partly because they were client relationships that I had probably sold in the first instance. And without, um, without me providing structure, directions, proper support and accountability to the new team de- delivering, it's very difficult for them to effectively deliver what I had sold. I'm sure that resonates with many, many, many other <laughs> people who own and manage their own businesses. Um, but I hadn't even really put in place enough kind of accountability structure that as that became an issue, it, it would be visible and we could deal with it. So it kind of got squirreled away because nobody wanted, um, so nobody did anything wrong, nobody tried to cover anything up but nobody wanted to say oh carried by the way (laughs) this is all really difficult now and we don't know what to do about it and it's really getting really really difficult so um, that inevitably changed the shape of the business not just because we kind of had the wrong wrong people trying to do the wrong work with not enough support and structure but also because the market had changed and our product was um probably came from our product was tired and it 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 was always a difficult product anyway so a new business emerged and one that where people had much more of a stake in the shared stake in risk and reward and I realized I needed to um that that living in a wonderful world of trust was great but that didn't mean that I had to stop logging into the bank account and checking everything there that I had to stop asking um, penetrating or you know searching questions that, that are by by contrast that was my response my absolute um, f- sort of fiscal and cultural responsibility to do that and right and this reminds me a bit of a quote yeah. I think it is it Ron yeah. Jeffries who said yeah account autonomy without accountability is just a vacation yeah that's right yeah yeah and actually nobody wants to go on a vacation where the money's running out and um, they're not having a lot of fun and they don't quite know what to do about it. And the, the um, person who was driving the bus on the trip has kind of gone for a really long ciggy, you know, that it's not fun trying to run somebody else's business or deliver somebody else's project without enough help and support and guide rails for what you need based on your skill level and, and so on. Um, so it wasn't particularly fun for them and it wasn't particularly fun for you to watch yeah. it. Uh, yeah, I think to, to the, credit of all of us you know they'd also seen my TEDx talk and really wanted to support me in this new high trust journey and everybody tried really 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 hard to make an old old model work um uh, but it just couldn't it couldn't so one of the so my new if we think about um reptile 1.0 being all about driving and striving and perfection and um, control and trying to make things happen um freedom 9.9 there are two massive apps. I'm sure there are lots of little apps, but there are two massive apps in it. Um, and one's called accepting and one's called allowing. And I had to accept that that old model didn't work and allow it to change and allow it to f- fail first. So we didn't go out of business. And luckily we were a, a business that never really ended up in any kind of serious 
cash problem, but that doesn't mean we didn't burn quite a lot of cash to get to get to that level of understanding <laughs> that would allow me to let let go of it. Um, and that was the journey that we had to had to go on. But you came close, did you, to 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 a, a problem with the business? Um, we came relative. We came relatively close because I didn't. It's very difficult to allow a model to fail or a team to fail without providing them with lots of and keep all your resources and say, well, uh, we. <laughs> Frankly, we've still got tons of cash, but you're not generating enough cash. So, you know, you're going to have to change or go. That that felt very, in, in, in my world as it was then, that felt very unfair. And I also felt like I was absolutely a participant and a, um, a colluder in how we'd got to where we were with all good intentions. And it was, it didn't feel very fair to say, so the, co- the cost of us all learning this is, you all need to change your jobs, but I'm going to keep the money. That that didn't feel fair. But then what I guess a, a bit like um, Malthus's population theory that, you know, there'll be this enormous population explosion and then suddenly there was enormous crisis and uh, mass starvation and famine and disease and so on and the population will crash. Actually, that isn't generally what happens and nor was it was seemed obvious to me that wasn't the right thing to happen in the business. There was no point like driving the car until it had completely run out of fuel and then saying, oh, well, that didn't work. So there came a point where I was like, well, if we keep going, so we're, all the evidence over the last few years points to the fact that with all our, our hardest work and great intentions, we can't make this work in this way. And if we keep going, we are going to run out of money and then we'll definitely all lose our jobs. So let's do something while we've got enough money and time to do that in a way we would like to do it but that doesn't mean it was it was easy uh, in any way or or pain-free quite quite the reverse so does that mean you sort of step back from this full trust type operating model and and put in some more accountability and a bit more fear back into the system or what what how would you characterize it yes i don't i don't think i think fear does Fear does have a role to play, absolutely, um, in our lives in general and in work, but it's a pretty small role in general. Um, So I certainly didn't try and put any fear back in, and nor did I try and take away any trust, but I did try to add in, in, as a sort of helpful tension counter, um, more clarity about what was and wasn't uh, w- what we could and couldn't live on. So, right, what's our new family budget? <laughs> um, what do we need to live on? So let's get absolutely clear of that about that. Um, let's put in more, so more visibility. So please, will you give me, share this information with me every month and give me your commentary on it and tell me what you think's working, what you think isn't working, what, what you're worried about, what help you need, and a, a, you know, a heads up for something you think I need to, you know, anything that you think would surprise me if I didn't hear about it now. Um, and I also, um, we put in place a um, peer, kind of peer, peer-to-peer support conversation. And actually what that me, meant was, we had um, an hour every Monday where the managing director and I would 
um, could talk about whatever was most important that we want either information we wanted to share, a problem we wanted to solve together or something we were worried about. And we, we used a LOMO format for that. So we used um, uh, a LOMO called On The Fly, where at the start of that, we'd spend five minutes creating little cards online that would say what the situation is right now, um, where I'm trying to get to and what, I, what help I need from you. And that might say things like situation. I'm going to try to. The situation is that we've got um, a marketing campaign underway for this product. We're um, halfway through. Where I'm trying to get to. Oh, uh, we're halfway through, and um, it's not as successful as we thought it was going to be. Where I'm trying to get to is to make changes for the second half so that it will uh, work and give us what we need. And what I'd like you to do. Um, so you have to be really clear on this. It might be, I just want you to listen while I tell you what I'm going to do, or I want you to give me some advice. So I'll tell you what the, all the problems and you just tell me what you do, or I want you to coach me. So I want you to ask me some good questions, or I want us to brainstorm it together. But the person raising the card took full responsibility for what they wanted the other person to do. Um, and then we'd order them. We take it in turns every other week. So I'd order it one week like in priority order um, and uh, the other person would do it the other week and anything we didn't get to in that hour would go in a car park and it would then kind of be it would um, be it would flow over to the following week and get reprioritized alongside whatever was important that week um, and a few things happened <laughs> so it meant that um, the managing director and I uh, both raised we were much, much, much more efficient at talking about things. Um, we, it was much easier to help each other. So when you're trying to context switch from problem to problem, it's really helpful if somebody frames that up very clearly for you. Um, we started to raise more and more things we were worried about. Even if we didn't know what the answer was, we problem solved things much more quickly. And we started to raise things that would have sat under the surface possibly for years. So, so uh, managing director and I had actually worked together for, for the best part of a decade in that business. So um, we'd gone through our own um, journey in our relationship. And, and in, in general, we had a, I felt we had a really good relationship anyway. But nevertheless, there's always things in a long-term relationship that you feel like it's just not okay to say that. Or if I say that, that's going to confirm that she thinks I'm X. Or I don't ask that because I don't want to kind of imply why. But we got much braver about raising things because we put them on cards and there was the time and the space to do it. And we addressed head on <laughs> some really big, big meaty things. And I found that incredibly um, incredibly useful and actually our probably our final year together was the most productive it could have been and it probably that that's that was the gestation period for being able to say despite a great relationship both being effective at our jobs um, lots of good accountability and goals and everything it, we just can't make this work so that's great let's let's crack on and do do things um do things differently. Right. So like a Gwyneth Paltrow, sort of conscious uncoupling. Yeah, now, and that, that's right. And I do think inevitably in that 
situation where one person's an employee and one person is the business owner, the, the power dynamic, there are, there are multiple power mm. dynamics and they're not all in one direction. So I don't uh, um, for a moment want to kind of smooth over how easy or difficult that was. Um, but I think what I can say is um, as soon as that, as soon as that was kind of resolved between us, like what was going to happen next, almost immediately. So within 24 hours, I would say our relationship returned to being as supportive, um, constructive, warm as it had ever been. And throughout our kind of final couple of months that we worked together, I felt um, that, that she was incredibly generous in how supportive she was of me, how well she prepared a handover, how thoughtfully she um, handled things like talking to clients. You know, it was, there was huge, huge generosity and we remain great friends now. Um, mm. and, and, and I think that's probably re- pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's very unusual, isn't it, for, for business partners to, to uh, yeah, to, to uncouple in that way. And it sounds to me like the on-the-fly on the format, which sounded so simple, contributed to that. Uh, yeah, it, it did. It did. And actually, one of the one of the principles of Lomo is that if you're in, if you're asking people to take much more responsibility, or you're inviting them to take more responsibility. The system is structured so that they have greater accountability, greater control, greater they're trusted, etc. Then you've got to provide a space where they can get support very, very easily and quickly. Um, and that's a totally normal, that's why we called it peer-to-peer. That's a totally normal part of um, um, te- you know, managing your work and doing your work is, is running things past other people all the time not because they're your manager and they know what to do better but because other people have things in their head you, you don't know and it's how you know the process of unpacking something with someone else can really help mm, and we really tried to so we baked that in to just how we did business but also Lomo tries to bake that in as well uh, and the, the, the point about writing down things down first really mm-hmm. resonates. So certainly my experience in workshops where you have people write yeah. things on post-its or write them down for, it's like it's a stepping stone to saying something out loud. And if you just ask them to say it out loud immediately, then yeah. there'd be a much higher barrier to communicating that thought or feeling. Whereas if you have them write it down first, then it's, it seems like a much lower step to read what you've just written down than, than to say it off the bat. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's a form of kind of short, short-term memory capture. So um, a lot of these things we do in, in Loma meetings are part of like group memory. So isn't, they aren't things that necessarily need to be remembered after the meeting, or they may be, but while we're in it, we're kind of capturing things outside of our head, both for our own purposes, because once I've got that thought on paper, I can think another one. I can kind of let go of that one and think another different one. Um as, and exactly as you say, you're creating some separation between person and thought. The, the other thing that I think is really useful, we did it online, but it's, it's almost more effective, it's at least as effective and probably more when you do it um, face-to-face, is in a meeting, you typically sit in a circle. Um, and sometimes it's kind of, uh, there's a, 
power is distributed around that circle. So the circle will have one end that's the power end. <laughs> and sometimes the other end is like the second power end. It's like whoever's got the sight, direct sight line of the power person. And then everybody else is sort of trying to make eye contact around. And then a circle is great. There are many reasons why we use a circle. But one of the downsides of a circle is it kind of puts you all in, in a um, position, a, dif a different axis, um, a different degree on the circle. So it's almost saying, well, I've got my position geographically here and yours is definitely different from mine because it's geographically over there. Um, and even though we're not sitting opposite each other in a, an obviously um, adversarial way, we are adopting geographical positions. Once you use post-it notes and then cluster, or, or a canvas, this is partly what the canvas is designed to do. Um, canvas goes up on the wall or goes on part of the table and people kind of orient themselves around it. You've then got everybody on the same side looking at all the data together. Okay, so they're not, right, they're not managing negotiating sort of power dynamics across this human space that orientate themselves towards the object and that diffuses some of that it can right. do it can do and okay. i think our bodies and our physicality give us tons of clues tell our brain what's going on and how to operate so just as i find it fascinating that not only does the process you know the process of smiling make you feel happier you can kind of see that that's you know that that's pretty obvious but actually if you ask people to hold a pen in their mouth this is where video would be useful oh, I'll do it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so just for the uh, uh, listeners out there Richard's got a pen in his mouth I'm going to ask him to put it in as if he's sucking a lollipop okay there we go in it goes um and now to change it so it's as if he's gripping it horizontally with his teeth yeah okay yeah. So if I asked you to complete a questionnaire um, saying how happy you felt uh, in a variety of situations with a pen in your mouth, you would um, you would be feel happier with the pen in your mouth, um, gripping it with your teeth horizontally, which right. is in a, it's not really a smile, but it's closer to a smile than sucking it like a lollipop. Right. And the idea that just even our mouth forming part of the shape of a smile makes our brain feel that we're happier is to me utterly extraordinary. So the power of geography <laughs> in, in a meeting and in many things in life is, is really powerful. Right. And now you're the geography of the, well, is it, is it geography or is it which muscles in your face are getting activated? Well, that, yeah. So, so I guess it's not geography. Um, I mean, I have a degree in geography, so you'd hope I'd know what geography was. And it, perhaps it isn't that. Um, it is the, it, you're right. It's the, it's the physical orientation. It's what we can, what we can see, what we can feel, what our muscles are doing. Um, it's a physical experience that connects to a mental process and possibly an emotion. Right. Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind is as I actually experienced a, a session that you facilitated once and <clears throat> it was a stand up and we were all giving updates about what we'd done the day before. And many of us were looking at you and trying to get you facilitating this, looking at you getting eye contact when we were giving our update and you're like don't look don't look at me don't look at me and it, it's 
and and I get that's because you didn't want to create a paradynamic where I'm updating you, right? I'm actually just sort of offering my update to the center of the circle. Is that the idea? Exactly. Yeah. So, so we were in a check-in meeting then. We were in a check-in Lomo um, in Cape Town. If I, yes, remember right. yeah. I do remember. I can remember. And in fact, I had that exact conversation yesterday at um, a Lomo workshop with a client where we talked about um, how how to use check-in to encourage people to take full responsibility for their work and to encourage them to update each other. Because actually, if all that's happening is... Um, five people around a circle are updating one project manager, if there's kind of one locus of that, of each piece of that information, then it would be a bit easier to do that one-to-one, be more efficient to do it one-to-one. So if you genuinely think that it's useful to do that together as a group, then the assumption must be it's powerful for other people, it's useful for other people to hear that information. And therefore, um, we eye contact is one of the things that shows where we're sending that information and what matters. Now, eye contact in meetings in general, I think is really important or really, or really fascinating. So, um, so sometimes in meetings I'll ask, or in a sort of low-mo training session, I might say, uh, who's the most powerful, powerful? Okay, just tell me, just quickly, everybody, tell me who's the most powerful person in this room. You know, or everybody has a little laugh and a kind of embarrassed, uh, <laughs> embarrassed chuckle. Or you can ask, can I just check who's the most important person in the room? <laughs> or uh, this is my really brave one. Sorry, everybody, just, just before we start, can you tell me who's the highest paid person here? Yeah, <laughs> good, <laughs> good embarrassed laugh at that. Um, but actually, it's really easy to tell. Um, I, I, I can't tell who's the most highest paid person, though you can usually guess that. But you can tell who the most powerful person in the room is in that instance. Doesn't mean they'll, they'll always be the most powerful in that group. But right now, who's the most powerful? Because what's a difficult question is thrown out or something that's potentially controversial. Um, what you see is everybody's eyes sliding across the room to the person whose facial expression they want to read or who, whose cue they want to take. Um, and that's a really simple way of identifying the, some of the power dynamics in a meeting. So in a check-in, it makes sense for the... Uh, or I encourage project managers to do if they want the outcome that the team is seeing itself as a seamless unit working together rather than reporting to the project manager and awaiting instructions from the project manager for decisions, then to you, to not have the project manager sit in the centre and say, right, everybody, okay, Angus, off you go. Um, Raoul, great, now you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, right. Um, no, no, you go next. You know, and, to, and, and actually the extension of that is um, don't use your eyes to control the pace of the contributions either. Let right. the room speak to each other. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. And I think what now what, I, what I'm hearing as well is back to very early in this conversation, you mentioned structure. And so if you take that away, you take the hierarchy away, well, in order for it to still be effective for people to, to know what to do, at least initially, then having a structure in place makes, makes sense, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and to, to replace that. And, but by the way, I know exactly what you're doing about knowing exactly who's the most powerful. I went on a, a men's weekend once and we all had to st- stand in silence at the start of this weekend and we were sort of put into groups and we were given the instruction, okay, um, in your mini groups, men, you, you, I'd like you, 
all of you to sit down and the last person standing is the, is the most powerful person in your mini group and will be the leader for the weekend. And, that wow. was, and we all picked our leaders. <laughs> and, I, and I was like fighting it out. There was two of us left standing and I was fighting it out with this guy. I'm like, damn it, I'm not bad. And uh, ultimately I could see just like, no, no, you, you're definitely more powerful than I am. And I, and I sat myself down and, and that guy led the, led the weekend. So yeah, you're right. There's something innate in all of us, isn't it? We, we just know at some human level, don't we? It's, it's a strange. We do. And I, and I guess this, this takes me probably to my kind of final, um, the final kind of aspect of Lomo and meetings that we haven't, the important part that we haven't talked about, which is how tribal they are, um, which is one of the reasons I think they're so resistant to change is I think they're such a metaphor for tribe within the organization and I think we often feel we end up behaving in a way that treats the group as a tribe so if you've ever if you've ever had that thing where you've all put your ideas on post-it notes and you put them all on the wall and everybody's voted on or some kind of process of sharing ideas and having them ha- having the best one decided have you ever kind of looked up and thought um oh is it mine did mine won yeah mine won even though ideas aren't owned and we've not put our names against any of them but you're so delighted that your idea won you know we're seeking to be um we're seeking to be right valuable make a contribution um we also do sometimes we want to uh shake up the leadership so we're deliberately controversial because we're trying to to kind of rattle the grip of the leader um off its hinges a little bit because we're we're trying to sort of assert our own authority so we're deliberately um uh brittle or um or unhelpful uh, or challenging and sometimes we do the opposite we just say we say nothing or, or we don't we don't say what is appearing in our head as as the useful contribution because we we don't want to uh rattle the leadership or say something that might be perceived as not valuable or unhelpful and all these things are just um, tr- um tribal um our tribal instincts totally rational if we use that using that part of our brain and so what I've tried to do with Lomo is create something that not only do you not need to be an amazing facilitator to have a great meeting you don't depend on your the skill of the person who's technically facilitating it but it also tries to release people's grip from some of those tribal instincts so for example you're very happy to listen to somebody else's point of view because you know the process allows you to critique it later and that's a nor- that's a totally normal part of it you don't have to fight for your right to critique it that's all that's already baked into the meeting and you know that um, okay so sort of working with the grain of these human dynamics but in yeah. a way that has us be more efficient and a less exactly. a bit less driven by some of these more primal exactly instincts. and then it's kind of it was really just a whole succession of those to help bring out the great data and the great insight and make see new things and make better decisions but whilst allowing that human need to get met in a structured way because my view is if you don't meet a human you don't meet the human need of somebody in a meeting it'll get met somehow they'll find a way to get it met either in that meeting or later on um, right so m- my view is if you want a task if you if, if you the task has a need you've got to yes. meet the human need meet the human need as well otherwise yeah. the task will get done brilliant yeah okay 
Good. Uh, so perhaps we're coming towards a, a close there. Is there, is there, is there anything up? So you, you're finishing your PhD. How long much, how much longer have you got to go on your PhD? I've got two more years. Two more years. And, and are you starting to get a sense of what might come out of it? Is there a, is there a Lomo 2.0 or another book or what, what do you, what do you think? Um, yes. Yeah. I think I'm, tr- I'm trying to say so in, ev- in every um, discipline, there are points in which you build on uh, what people, pre- previous people have done in quite a sequential incremental way. And there are points at which then you turn a corner and you start mm. to build on it in a different way. So using a different methodology or looking, looking at it in a different way. And I think I would like to help meeting science as it is known to oh, turn. Wow. There's, a, there's a thing. I know it's wonderful, isn't it? To turn, turn a corner. So to uh, look at meetings more systematically look at them more systemically so what role do they play in getting work done culture etc um exactly how that will be done i don't i don't know um um but i guess the two things that are driving it one is to to help better work get done so to have work that's been decided done better completed better but secondly to allow more humans to have better experiences in meetings so to leave a meeting feeling better about themselves feeling like they contributed that's all that's all we want at work none of us wants to do a terrible job or you know to be lazy or to be unhelpful or have really most people don't want conflict what most people want to do is to feel valued and that they were able to use their skills and contribute and a meeting is a massive very public arena for doing that and my research has to make a contribution to that Great. Okay, final question to all my guests. So, Carrie Beddingfield, for you, what does it mean to be human? For me, it means somehow, somehow reconciling that my kind of enormous almost untamable <laughs> desire to do things make things create things make things happen with my inherent you know physical and mental limitations or the you know and my just my humanity so to to create and do and fulfill my natural instinct to make and do as much as i possibly can but not at the cost of my personal sanity mental health and just to start to see myself as somebody we talked at the very beginning about um is it okay to want to be special and valuable and that yes yes absolutely it is but not if it comes from a place uh, it's not so helpful if it comes from a place of fear but what I've come to realize is we're special and valuable no matter what <laughs> this is what I had never understood um, and so to feel that I am special and valuable inside out and to use that as a platform to create and do things. Wonderful. You're special and valuable to me, Kerry. Thank you. Okay, so where, where can people find you? What's, what's the best place if they want to learn I'm more? At, yeah, I'm at uh, carriebeddingfield.com and on Twitter I'm at cbeddingfield and it's just one D. Just one D. 
And Lomo is, there's a website for that, right? Yeah, Lomo is, uh, so you, you can find a link to Lomo on my personal website. Um, Lomo is lomo-meetings.co.uk. Awesome. Carrie, well, thank you for, for being human. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right.